Good morning, everybody. Welcome to yet another edition of As China Turns. Today, we're going to be looking at what you guys covered with Deng Xiaoping and the four modernizations, just so uh, we have some uh, background and make sure that your answers are correct for your assignment. Please make sure that not only are you playing this audio file, but you also have the PowerPoint as well available. This one should say Communist China 6 2020. And the first thing you should see on your PowerPoint is going to be post Mao China reform brings change and trouble. Yeah, well, China, China today is definitely not the China that we've been covering over the last couple of weeks. Uh, China makes a big leap forward. Yeah, we talked about the um, the the leap that they attempted to make with Mao, but we're talking about a dramatic change that will not only affect um, China specifically, because we're looking at China, but also the global relations that the world has with China. China, because of Deng Xiaoping, becomes this manufacturing capital of the world. China pretty much produces everything for the world. Now, I'm not, you know, of course, not everything for the world, surely, but they become such a production hub that they are critical for the basic survival um, of many nations. If you look at the United States, for example, we, you know, we were a manufacturing nation uh, during the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, into the 50s, into the 60s, and then things started to change in the 1960s and 1970s. China opens its door, and what ends up happening is a lot of American companies that were producing products here in the United States will go to China because the cost of living is less expensive. Minimum wage is less expensive. So whatever items that were being made here in the United States can now be made in China for a fraction of the cost. And that, in turn, means that they, that same product that was being made, at, let's say, like a washer-dryer, for example, right? If that washer and dryer was made here in the United States, you know, you might be needing to pay two, $3,000 for that washer-dryer set because our standard of living is more expensive, our minimum wage is more expensive, and so American workers are going to have have to be paid more. In China, that's not the case. In China, the standard of living and minimum wage is a lot less, and so the final product that's being made uh, is done for a fraction of the cost. Now, what that translates to us for us here in the United States is that those products are going to be a lot cheaper for us. So you might weigh the two. All right, let's say we continue to have products made in China, and I also enjoy um, the less expensive items that I'm purchasing now. Of course, that goes off of supply and demand that would increase or decrease prices. But for the most part, what is made in China, uh, prices are going to be a lot lower. Or do I want Americans to have an opportunity to have jobs back? And I would be willing to pay more for those products, knowing that Americans were having, working in jobs, kind of a nationalist uh, approach. But you know, it, it's different for everybody. Some people might say, you know, we don't want American jobs to go to China, and they might be willing to pay more money for those products if they're made here in the United States. Or on the flip side, they might say, well, I, I like products that are pretty cheap as far as price goes, and so I'm okay with those jobs going to uh, to China as long as I don't have to pay expensive amount of money. Well, that that transformation of China from being a closed off communist world 
to a open, much more accepting of global relations and of capitalism takes place in what you guys read the other day under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping. So if you guys go to the second slide there, you're going to see a picture of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, he is one of the old and last revolutionaries of China, some one of the original revolutionaries that was alongside Mao during the Maoist period. But the one thing that separates him from a lot of the other old revolutionaries is that he's a reform-minded leader. Reform meaning that he can take something and change it. He's open to change. Whereas some of the old communists might say, no, I, I, I want life to stay exactly the way it is. This communist utopia, um, the people of China being forced onto communal farming. Uh, we are going to all beat on the same drum. We are all going to pull on the same rope for the greatness of, of China. That can still happen. But perhaps maybe the communist utopia that Mao envisioned or the forcing of peasants onto communal farms or the middle school, those terrifying middle school and high school kids running around and, and uh, beating up people who were considered to be anti-revolutionaries during the Cultural Revolution, maybe that's not the China of the future. And what Deng Xiaoping does is much like what Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev did with perestroika, um, mostly perestroika in Russia. So in Russia, perestroika allowed Russian people to have a little bit of taste of capitalism mixed in with their communist lifestyle. Now, right there, that's that's a contrast in ideologies. How do you allow capitalism when capitalism in, in a communist system when capitalism is the evil theory? How can you tell Russians or Chinese people who have been hearing for years that individualism is awful? Money is greed. Uh, when you think about yourself and not your fellow man, you're being selfish. And all of those terms are kind of uh, associated in the negative with capitalism, right? Capitalism is the idea that you invest your money to make money. You do it for yourself. But, you know, there is also not only are you investing your money to make money, but you're also helping other people. Um, you're opening up a business because you want to make money, but you have to hire people to work in that business. So not only are you making money, but you're also generating a profit by uh, providing work and payment for those people who are working your position. And it's kind of a ripple effect. You make money and other people make money off of you, off of your greed or your want of money. But here we have that kind of paradox, ideological paradox. How can you allow capitalism into a communist system and believe yourself to be successful and not need to change any further? Well, Deng Xiaoping attaches this, uh, attempts this, excuse me, if you guys go to the next slide with the four modernizations. Uh, here he wants to uh, change, alter, um, bring back, uh, perhaps a, or not bring back, I shouldn't say bring back, but to provide a new view for the Chinese. So he is bringing in changes to agriculture, changes to industry, defense. And then I notice on your homework, some of you guys wrote it in as like industry, defense, science, and technology as the four. But science and technology are the fourth. Those are uh, paired together. So agriculture, industry, defense, science, and technology. And this isn't, it's not much different from what Mao was attempting to do. And I 
I, I don't want to simplify it. it. It is a lot different, but it is just another one of those five-year plans, another five-year plan, great leap forward for modernization. So China has a history of saying, by the time we get to this date, we want these things to grow. And so this is what the upgrade for the economy is going to be towards agriculture, industry, defense, science, and technology. This is China's greatest leap. Um, if you go to the next slide, you're going to, the title will say continued. You see a couple of propaganda posters from the time period for the great leap forward. And if you notice there, you know, they got scientists that are in there, uh, computer tech people, uh, farmers, um, satellites, missiles for defense. And then underneath, it looks like there's a, uh, an airplane right next to the hammer and sickle for, for communism and the communist flag. And yet there's a dove for peace and a missile in the background. So it's like, oh, we're doing it for defense, not to be militaristic or to attack, but we're doing it for the defense of our nation. Uh, Deng stops all of the communes, all those communes that those 25,000 people communes that Mao initiated during the Great Leap Forward. That ends. Uh, the people were now asked if you, know, if you want land, that's fine, but you have to lease it or you have to rent the lands in order to farm on it. Right? Well, if you're leasing or renting the lands, that means that you, you need money. Right? You need to generate money. But if you lease the land or you rent the land and you're a farmer, then you farm the land. Whatever products that you make off the farmland, you could eventually sell it. A little profit for yourself. A little bit goes to pay off the government because you're renting that territory, renting that land. Uh, and then, of course, with taxes, you know, the, the government's going to make uh, a, a lot as well. So it, what we're kind of allowing the Chinese people to do is have a taste of the money that can be in their hands. These are people who have not ever had that flavor, not ever had that uh, that land or that uh, opportunity. Remember that many of these people were told that being greedy is awful. Dung changes it now and says it's okay to want something. It's okay to want a bicycle. It's okay to want um, to open up a restaurant. It's okay to do something good for you or make money for yourself. That's not. It's not egotistical. It's not selfish. It's something that not only benefits you, but it benefits other people around you. Well, I mean, there you go. That's that's capitalism. So he allows small businesses to open now. An average Chinese person is not going to become a millionaire overnight. They're not going to be driving Ferraris in the middle of Beijing at any point. All right, now, people in government might. They might. And that's, that's another big contrast that we note with China these days is that you have the system of communism, which is in theory supposed to make everyone equal, but yet you have farmers who have bicycles, maybe, in China, and that contrasts to the people who live downtown in Beijing and these skyscrapers, and you know government officials who are sometimes driving Ferraris. Hmm, I don't know how equal that sounds of an equal communist state, but um, you can open up a small mom and pop shop, uh, a restaurant, a bicycle shop. Perhaps maybe you're going to start selling electronic devices, uh, televisions, radios. And the Chinese people are thriving off of it. And as you'll see in the video, you know, during the Maoist era, it was difficult for you to get things that didn't exist in China, like um, like strawberries or watermelons or things like that. And you, you might say, well, wait a second, they didn't exist in China? No, you you had to import a lot of those fruits. You had to get, I think, as the video talks about, like a doctor's note in order to get certain types of fruits and vegetables. Well, that changed under Deng because Deng and even... Uh, his predecessors opened the door for the Western world to start trading 
low low trading, but trading between the states. And with that, then you're going to have the increase in a lot more food and uh, vegetables that are coming in. And, and also, not just food and vegetables, but the opportunity for the Chinese people to buy something that's foreign, something that's outside of their market and kind of opens the window uh, to the outside world for the Chinese people who've been closed off for many years. The last bullet point there says people could sell their products and food for a profit. Once again, it's a small profit, but that profit now allows you to start saving money for something that you want in the future. You can start putting money aside because you want that bicycle or you want to buy your children a toy or you want that radio. You are now looking into the future and saying, oh, if I, if I can make more money, I can get myself something else. If I, oh, if I can make more money, I can get this. And you start to have this consumer society that develops, right? The consumer is the guy who goes out and purchases products. Oh, I have an opportunity to get this. And you start to have people who have dreams and aspirations that develop, right? Instead of the country dictating what you will receive, you can start daydreaming. You can start uh, maybe daydreaming or just dreaming in general. Oh, one day, one day if I work hard enough, I will be able to buy this or be able to live in a better house. I'll be able. That's a lot of what happens in the capitalist system. All right. We go to school, we get a degree, or we apply ourselves, we work hard, we try to make money because we understand that in our society, money allows us to not only survive, but to also thrive. And so if we put in the effort, we put in the work, we get that better job, we get that uh, promotion, we work harder, we can make more money because we can go on that trip, we can get that television, we can buy that product, uh, we can live in a nicer house, we can move to a nicer area, we can, and you have your dreams and aspirations that can become reality if you apply yourself. Same thing is going to happen in China. The Chinese people didn't know what those dreams were. They didn't know what heights they could hit. Uh, they didn't have those aspirations before Dung. And now Dung changes that. And with those dreams comes potential trouble for the Chinese. If you guys click on the uh, the slides, you're going to see the next one that says the effects of the four modernizations. Uh, standard of living is going to increase in China. That just means quality of life. Things are all getting better. So better food, better medicine, better living areas, better farming methods. So standard of living just means quality of life. If you take two cities, for example, let's just say um, one that is in a impoverished area, their standard of living would be pretty low. If you go to a place, let's say, I don't know, like Beverly Hills, their standard of living is going to be very high. Um, that also translates with money as well. So standard of living is not just your quality of life within the city, but also translates to expense. You know, if you were to go to Beverly Hills and buy a, a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or something like that, uh, you might be asked to pay two or three dollars for a Pepsi. Where you go across Los Angeles, you go to a, an area that might see a little bit more poverty or have a lower standard of living, and they're asking for a dollar. It's the same bottle, it's the same product, but the standard of living means that that item might be more expensive in certain areas and less expensive in others. Tourism to China started to increase. Well, if China is going to open its door, uh, its door to ideas, it's also going to see the opportunity of people touring China as a way of making money. People are coming in from the outside world. They are touring China. They are spending money. At, you know, this is true of any of us that might be traveling around the world. 
right? We go to a nation, not just to, to see the nation or to see a city to go to a land, but you also have to pay for hotels and you're going to have to pay for food and you're going to buy your little trinkets and you're going to bring back gifts. And that's all money that is generated for, by China because of the tourism that opens up. People get a small amount of capitalism. The Chinese can purchase items, as televisions, appliances for themselves. That's a major effect that we talked about for the four modernizations. And then China becomes more westernized. At any point, you open the doors to the outside world. That outside world is going to affect you whether you like it or not. Now, it might not always be the effect that you were hoping for or the positive change. It might be negative as well. So when the doors open, what do the Chinese people see? The Chinese people can see what their life is like versus what the world is like. And yes, probably what's coming in is going to be much more of a Western popular culture. Uh, this is the same thing that happened in Russia during the communist age in the 1980s. Uh, Russia opens its doors to the uh, to American culture and television. And like you know, we talked about MTV being displayed on Russian televisions for the first time. And the Russian people, and here in this case, the Chinese people can say, this is what our life is like here in this country, but look what they have. Look what they get. Look what jobs that they have, the, the cars that they're driving, the, uh, the opportunities that they have, and they can judge whether their life is better or worse. Now, when Deng gave those people the opportunity, the Chinese people, the opportunity to make money for themselves, and now you're opening up a world that seems completely different to yours, where people's dreams in America or in Canada or in Italy or in South America are becoming reality because they have money, they have a dream, and within the system of the government, within the economic system, you can actually apply yourself and arrive to that dream and make it a reality. Maybe that's not the way it is in China. So people might start getting uh, upset or getting increasingly frustrated as their life even though it's been altered by providing a little bit more money, the in the grand scheme of things, not much has changed by way of politics or by way of control. The government is still in control. You no longer have – there's not the same opportunity of freedom that you might see in the outside world. So popular culture changes, dress changes. So the Chinese people start dressing more like the Western world. They start listening to Western music, Western ideas. But please notice where I drew the line, that bullet point that has a line across. This is where the cutoff is. China would be willing to go through any of those changes that are above. Westernization, capitalism, tourism, increase in standard of living. But where the Chinese government drew the line was no political democratization. They do not want democracy in China. Communism is to stay, and that is final. There is no say of the people. The people have no right to speak. It is the Communist Party that dictates what happens. So when we're, we're looking at the next slide, you're going to see Deng Xiaoping. He's holding up a, um, a poster that says free markets, not people. That's, that's exactly uh, what is happening in China. Deng would be willing to open up the capitalist markets, the opportunity to make money, but not provide freedom for people. What they're talking about here in the cartoon is specifically democratic freedom. And that's the problem that's coming. Can China continue to allow their people to have capitalism and capitalist principles and all that goes along with it and yet stop any democratic ones from meshing? In the West, we have that married together. We have an ideology of freedom here. 
And that freedom translates to also freedom of opportunity, freedom to open a business, freedom to make money, freedom to make millions of dollars if you like. That does not exist in China. At least Deng's vision doesn't uh, envision that. What he sees is free market on one end and communism on the other. We can make money, but the communist ideals have to stay in place. And this becomes a combustible um, marriage in China, a combustible situation, right? A combustible meaning explosive situation. At some point, if you are telling the, the Chinese people that they have freedom of money, that they can dream, they can want, they have aspirations, and every time they start dreaming, they're kind of slapped back down. Like, I don't know, envision it, you know, if you have this, this man who every time something amazing happens to him and he goes to stand up like, oh, he's standing up and something awful, you know, wonderful has, has come and all of a sudden the government kind of slaps you and you have to sit back down again. Oh, okay. You know, oh, 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 every time you try to become an individual, move your way up, try to change the system, you get slapped back down again. Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense and not just a bunch of audio junk. Uh, next slide. We got Tiananmen Square, 1989. And this is when that combustible situation explodes. Uh, students started gathering in what is the largest space in the world, largest public space in the world. Uh, in Tiananmen Square in front of, I think it's the Forbidden Palace in uh, Beijing. Uh, they were gathering and demonstrating because a government leader, uh, Hu Yaobang, I believe is the, the name. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Excuse me. Another, another gentleman had passed away. And because this member of the Communist Party was a reform-minded member, meaning that he wanted change, and a lot of what he was asking for were basic rights for many of the university and college students that he kind of agreed with. The university students wanted a bigger role to play or even a part to play in his funeral service. And so they started to gather in Tiananmen Square simply for that. They just wanted a part to play. They said that this man has been great. He's been an influence in our lives. We want to attempt to memorialize him and help his um, in his funeral service. The government uh, said, no, no, thank you. No, we don't want you to be part of it. And then that was it. They didn't do anything about the students who would begin to, to gather. And so more students gathered and then more students gathered. And finally, by the time the government actually issues a response, the, this huge plaza of Tiananmen Square is gathered with not only students from Beijing, but also students and people from outside of Beijing. Uh, so when the Chinese government then told the protesters no, uh, the students decided that their protest was no longer for the funeral service. It was now going to change. Instead, they started calling for better uh, facilities within their schools, the opportunity to demand different classes at a university level. Um, I, I would say if you guys are are looking at the curriculum that you guys have at a high school level, right? You have a wide variety of curriculum and, and there is an opportunity at, at points, right? That you can select and choose which classes you want to take. It allows a little bit more fluidity, right? It allows a little bit more opportunity for you to say, hey, I want to take this language. I want to take this math. Oh, I don't have to take this science? Okay, well then I'm going to take something different. In China, they didn't have that. In China, it was pretty regimental. So if you were going to become a mathematician, you had to take 
classes A through Z in math. And that was it. Well, what if you want to uh, learn language as well? Or what if you want to be an engineer, but you also want to dabble in a couple of uh, sciences you know, that they don't have that opportunity? So university students started asking for better rights, better campus living conditions in their dormitories, better food at their dorms. And then from the funeral service to better uh, quality of life for university students, it morphed into something that they called democracy. And the students had no idea what democracy was. They had no clue. Um, they could define it, but how it worked, how it actually works here, let's say, for example, in the United States or in a Western democratic country, they have no clue. But it sounded like a great term to kind of throw out there. Um, and in not knowing how democracy works, uh, majority rules, they ended up getting themselves into quite a bit of trouble. When the Chinese government finally cracked down, they sent in tanks and they started firing on the protesters. But as you'll see in the video, they actually didn't attack many of the protesters themselves. What they ended up attacking were the people of Beijing who had surrounded the students. A lot of the, some students went on a hunger strike and that struck a chord with a lot of the Chinese people. And so the, the people of Beijing were surrounding the students. And when the government came in with their tanks and opened fire, they ended up killing a lot of the people of, of Beijing. The crackdown ends up costing the Chinese people about 3,000 lives. And it also ends up disrupting a lot of our relationship that we had with China, the U.S. relations. Uh, we were selling weapons to the Chinese. We were in total you know, trade, as we are today, um, trading partners with China. And here we have a government that now opens fire on its own people. And that, of course, is going to, you know, for a democratic country, people here in the United States, is gonna, they're going to start looking at the president at the time. That was President Bush Sr. And start asking the question, what are we doing? Are we still giving weapons to China? Because it looks like they're using those weapons to fire at their own people. And so we cut back on trade. But it things eventually. And this is, this is where we get to that part where China is so important for the world that even if you were to punish China, you're kind of punishing yourself. Uh, and, and China knows this and we know it as well. So it's one of those things where you're, you know, you, you might punish China, but you might be cutting off your foot in the process as well. If you'd be willing to go along with only one foot, then you might punish. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this, especially with COVID right now. So if you guys go to the next slide, you're going to see what a picture that shows you the mass amount of people. And this is a really small picture area of what the square, Tiananmen Square, looks like in Beijing. The place is massive. If you go to the next slide, there you see a couple of people holding up signs. One of them says, we no longer trust dirty public servants. He's talking about the Communist Committee, the people who run the government, the Communist Party themselves. We trust Mr. Democracy. All right. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the Chinese students are trying to say of the Communist Party that they have total control, they have absolute power. And so when you have complete power, yeah, you're going to take advantage of it and you don't distribute that power equally. Other people have no say in it. The next slide, you're going to notice a statue that is made out of plaster of Paris. That statue is called the Goddess of Democracy. Uh, if you notice it, it looks quite like another statue that's in the harbor at New York. Take a moment to think about it. What statue does that look like here in the United States? It looks like the statue of, 
Liberty. Yes, a Statue of Liberty that is in uh, the harbor in New York. This this became the defining moment for a lot of the protesters. Uh, they built a scaffold around it. They propped it up. And one of the iconic images is what you see on the left-hand side. There's the goddess of democracy holding up her flame of democracy, her promise of flame. And she's staring straight into the eyes of the guy who was the first communist leader of China. All right, here is collectivization, collectivism, communist living, staring at a symbol that represents democracy for the Chinese people, at least these Chinese students. Next slide shows you the tanks that are coming in. This also became a really iconic image. Uh, CNN, the location that they had in Beijing where they were broadcasting from um, was not too far away from the square and up on their floor at a, a small little angle, they actually caught this image and it's, it's a videotaped image, not just a photograph of a man attempting to stop uh, tanks coming into the square, getting into the square. Apparently there, there's a story that goes along here. I'm not sure how true it is that the man that's outside knows the man inside the, uh, the tank, the driver of the tank, and that there's a discussion that goes on. I, I'm not too sure. I heard about this story years ago, but I've, I've not verified it. That the men who are driving the tank, the tanks are also from Beijing. Uh, they send in the Beijing soldiers, not just you know Chinese soldiers from around China. And that the two men knew each other or know of one another or live close to one another or were school, uh, schoolmates growing up or something like that. Eventually, the man's going to jump on top of the tank and other people will come and pull him away. I'm not sure what happened to that man seems like he had a, a suitcase and a bag that you might have been going home and just got frustrated and said, no, I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm not going to allow the government to send in their tanks to hurt the protesters. Well, that man was pulled aside. And the next image that you see you know, is of the consequences that took place. The army will open fire. Had to cut this part. The, uh, the audio ended up going uh, dead on me. So the next thing you're seeing here in the image are of the consequences of bodies strewn on the street um, as the tanks come in. Remember that the most of the people who were killed were not the students, but the people protecting, the people of Beijing that were surrounding the students and stopping the armored tanks and the soldiers from getting in to harm the students. The next uh, picture that you see is a political cartoon that is the Dung Memorial. Now, this is Tiananmen Square in front of the Forbidden Palace, and there is the goddess of democracy. Notice that she's been uh, tumbled or uh, crashed over. She's broken. She has blood coming out of her. This is, once again, a, a critique of that this is what Dung is going to be remembered most uh, for. I think this, the, Dung dies in the 1990s, 1992, 1993, something around there. And so this is an artist saying this is what he is always going to be remembered for, the crackdown that took place at Tiananmen Square. And then you have a uh, political cartoon of two men. Uh, one man is reading a newspaper, the other is by a cell window. And the man reading the newspaper says, you have to admit, Deng Xiaoping made it possible for us to see the fruits of capitalism. And if you notice the um, newspaper says Deng Xiaoping dies. So talking about the four modernizations, the re reforms that took place that allowed capitalism to come into China. And the man by the window says, yeah, I can see McDonald's from our cell window. Saying, yeah, oh, some great things have taken place, right? Um, outside uh, entities like McDonald's can sell their products here. Wow, what the great fruits of capitalism. But notice that we're still in a prison. So although China has liberated themselves economically by bringing capitalism, 
they have not liberated themselves democratically. They still have a government that oppresses, a government that cracks down on people, saying that they want freedoms, that they want democracy. And this leads us to our next slide, the results. Uh, the Tiananmen Square protest did little to press the issue of democracy in China. Every year, um, there are guards that roam the square looking for potential pop-ups of democratic revolt or people that are gathering together. And they're all dressed incognito, meaning that you don't notice. They're just dressed in average clothing um, as a way for the Chinese government to protect itself. It, it's almost like China here is attempting to wipe out all memory of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, a lot of the students who were protesters were allowed to leave China and live here in the United States and continue to um, press China on the issue of democracy and that China needs to open up and be truthful about what happened on Tiananmen Square. Uh, the initial reports were something that a couple of people were killed, but it was mostly soldiers. And then eventually China started opening up its mouth and started saying, okay, maybe upwards of 3,000 people. Nobody knows for sure. It could be 5,000, 6,000, 10,000. Um, but what this once again shows us is that the government has the ability to open up, but most likely it's going to be shut closed. All right? They do not want to do the mia culpa, my, my fault. It's, it's our fault. Because once you say it's your fault, then people are going to ask you to pay. And China doesn't want to pay by giving up power that the communists have. Uh, China today is an economic powerhouse of industry and production, and that is what makes it difficult for the next bullet point. Difficulties still exist in human rights violation, pollution, and pandemics. Because China is so important economically to industry and what is produced and sold around the world, that's why governments find it difficult to point the finger at China when they do have human rights violations. Let's say China moves into uh, a foreign state, opens fire and kills scores of people, 20, 30 people, or ends up uh, going into a country, arresting a population and throws them in prison. Governments across the world might say, hey, China, you can't do that. That's kind of messed up. And then that's it. It's not like they're going to say, well, okay, well, we're going to stop selling with China. We're going to stop trading with China because once again, you do something like that, you're kind of harming yourself. You're cutting off your own foot. You're uh, injuring your own economy because China is so integrated. Now, it could be that China screws up, that China does something that they cannot come back from, and the world punishes China. And then at that point, China might have to say mia culpa and have to deal with it. And that potentially could be what's going on right now with COVID. Right, pandemics have been coming out of China for for centuries, and so at what point does China have to say, "I'm sorry," and then pay for the costs that come out of this? Right? Is it that our government's just going to say, "Hey, China, it's okay. This stuff happens all the time. No big deal," or are we on the brink of an economic collapse? You know, something that we haven't seen since the years of the Great Depression. And then, if that happens, does the world just say, "Oh well"? Or does the world say, well, China has to pay for it? Now, pay, that might be a word thrown out there. What does that mean? Do they have to physically pay, like by paying you know, millions of dollars or billions of dollars of damage? Or do they have to pay by you know, eliminating wet markets or stopping or attempting to stop pandemics from taking place in their nation again? What, what is the payment? You know, some people are calling for it. Some people are, are not. Because once again, 
if they bring too much pressure on China, that China could close their doors. Let's say China says, well, that's it. We're not going to trade with this country anymore. Well, you just, you know, you just might have might as well dropped an A-bomb on your economy if you might have destroyed it that way. So, but it it is a give and take relationship. And so it's critical for not only the nations to tread lightly with China, but also on the flip side, China has to tread lightly. Uh, because they understand that their survival of their nation, because they are such an industrial powerhouse, also means that they have to play well with nations around the world. And if China screws up, then they are screwed. So, all right. Uh, next uh, image, you're going to see the um, questions that I like for you guys to answer as you're watching the video. Uh, the video will be attached to this um, to to one, uh, as a file. You can also find it on YouTube. It's declassified Tiananmen Square. Um, and then you have your last assignment for this lesson is going to be to complete homework seven. You might have completed it already. That's absolutely fine. But what I need for you guys to do is to watch the video, answer the questions. You can either answer the questions on the file, on the Google Docs, and submit that. Or you can answer the questions on your packet and snap a picture, submit that. And then the same thing for the homework. You can complete the homework questions in your packet, snap a picture, submit it, or you can complete the homework questions for homework seven um, on the Google Docs that have been provided. All right. So this is due, these two assignments, the declassified Tiananmen Square questions, as well as homework seven by Thursday. And then on Thursday, we'll have somewhere like a, maybe a, a 15 to 20 question quiz that'll be sent out via Google Forms on Thursday. All right. Hopefully you guys are well. Hopefully you guys are uh, surviving and thriving in your home classrooms to whatever capacity that is. I'm still here in the back bedroom doing my uh, recordings, um, trying to make it all work. Um, so anyways, if you guys have any questions, let me know. Send some information for uh, to me uh, on Wednesday this week. So the 29th, that's when grades are going out for the quarter progress reports, quarter four progress reports. So you should see that at some point. If you guys have any late assignments that you want to throw my way, try to get them in maybe by tomorrow. This way, Wednesday, I can work on my grades. Um, but tomorrow, you know, late tomorrow, uh, you know, the latest set, you know, try to get something in if you haven't completed one of these assignments to so try to get our grades up as high as possible before I issue the, the send on my grades. Okay. Take care, everybody. I uh, can't wait to see you at, uh, at some point. <laughs> Probably will be next year, next school year. But uh, take care. Talk to you guys soon.